Welcome to the Olivia Mythodrama Leading in a Climate Changed World podcast. Straight from the Climate Change and Consciousness Conference, Robin talks to Cristiana Figueres, former Executive Secretary to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. She's now the convener of Mission 2020, a shared global campaign to accelerate climate change action and reduce greenhouse emissions to protect the world's most vulnerable communities. Christiana spent 35 years as a senior international diplomat and was a significant figure in brokering the 2015 Paris Agreement. Robin and Christiana talk about international leadership and the implication of the US pulling out of the Paris Agreement in 2020. Is this really the disaster it's made out to be? They discuss how top-down and grassroots leadership can combine to make an impact on important topics like climate change. They talk about the role that international government plays in working towards a carbon neutral planet. If it can't be the sole responsibility of the government, then who else has to take action and what can we do as individuals? A key discussion point is how leaders of businesses and communities can influence global corporates and their commercial decisions. Let's pass over to Robin and Christiana. So welcome, Christiana. Welcome to our conference, Climate Change and Consciousness, Our Legacy for the Earth. It's wonderful to have you present with us. And Well, can, can I just say thank you. Th- thank you first for the invite, but also thank you very much for allowing me to participate in what I would call a very low emission manner. So thank you very much for allowing me to do that. That's true. You are modeling what we need to do. So maybe you could start a little bit. Of course, one of the things you're really renowned for is brokering the Paris Climate Agreement. And I know you didn't do that on your own by any means, but you were very much a figurehead who brought us out of the ashes of despair from Copenhagen in 2009 to an amazing agreement with 195 countries in the Paris Agreement. And I wonder if there's some lessons from that that you would apply or could kind of talk to us about when we look at political leadership now, because there was this high point then, and now it feels as if our political leaders are slipping and ebbing away. And I wonder if there's something you can talk to us around political leadership and how we can leverage it and encourage it at this time. Well, first of all, um, I think we actually have to be much more aware Uh, of what do we mean by when we say political leadership is slipping away. If we actually let ourselves go into the default of reading or listening to uh, the standard media that we all do, and then thinking that that is 100% of reality, that's already the first mistake. Uh, Because as we know, uh, there is a tendency to be dramatic uh, in the media and especially to emphasize the bad news because for some very odd reason that I still have yet to understand why bad news uh, attracts more attention than good news um, is something that we should actually work on. But um, when we say political leadership is slipping away, okay, what do we actually mean? You know, Robin, I had a father, fantastic father, who every time I went to him and I said, You know, dad, everyone is saying that. He would say, stop right there. Tell me exactly the names of everyone. And I think that's the attitude that we have to have, right? Exactly who do we mean uh, that is actually slipping away from political leadership on this? Definitely the White House, okay? I am not going to dispute that. Now, does that actually mean that the United States as a whole economy is slipping away? By far not. 
By far not, right? We have at least 13 states, we have at least 300 cities, we have at least a thousand corporations plus investors plus banks that have said no matter what the White House is saying, we continue to decarbonize because we understand that it's good for our economy if you're a subnational government or it's good for our bottom line if you are a corporation. So, so that's the first thing that we need to understand. Furthermore, yes, 195 countries came together in Paris, including the United States, and then the United States has said that it will leave the Paris Agreement once it can legally do so, which is not until November 2020. So let's just understand that as well. Um, but even, even so, what of the 195 countries, what other countries have actually said that they were going to leave the Paris Agreement? The United States will leave in, in November of 2020. Brazil is kind of still trying to figure out what they're going to do. Please name the other 193 countries. Not there, right? So just because the United States, or rather just because the White House tends to have a very large microphone and tends to do a lot about many topics that frankly he has no idea about, um, I wonder if we then reach the conclusion that political leadership has slipped. Just to give you the counter example, as I was coming here to, uh, to get in front of my computer and be with you today, I was just listening to this amazing speech of the Minister of Energy and Coal of India, of India, uh, the seventh largest economy, third in power parity, 1.3 billion people, which the United States cannot put on the table, saying we, India, is, is we are going to lead the world in electric mobility. We're going to reduce, and why do we want to do it? Because we want to reduce our dependence on imported fuel. In India today, solar energy is much cheaper than coal. Let me go beyond that. New solar is much cheaper than standing coal. So even coal that has already been paid off for, new solar is cheaper in India. So why would they not want to use cheaper electricity that they have full control of instead of importing coal whose price they do not control? and using their very expensive foreign currency to import, um, to import coal. So, you know, when we say, well, political leadership is slipping, really? Let's get to the facts, okay? We're living in a, in a world of uh, somehow facts are no longer, um, no longer necessary, and we just make these sweeping statements. I fundamentally refuse to say that there's no political leadership. It is untrue. There is political leadership. All we have to do is look for it and understand that maybe the minister of India delivering this address to the legislative power in India, including, including Modi sitting in the audience and applauding this, so maybe that doesn't get as much microphone as one tweet coming out of the White House. But then we actually have to look and see where is the leadership coming from, and I would um, I would actually argue that it's actually there. That's great to hear and a great reminder to really be specific about what we're talking about. And in that vein, I wonder if you could also talk a bit to the leadership that's emerging from the grassroots, because you've been working on, on the inside channels, you've worked as an, for NGOs and uh, as a diplomat and executive secretary for the UN Framework Convention for Climate Change, very much on the inner channels. And then there are people like, 
Greta Thunberg and the, and the, the student movement that she's catalyzing and Extinction Rebellion that are kind of in the streets bringing our attention to this. What's the interface and what's the leadership you experience from the grassroots as well as the, the kind of top-down approach? How do they meet each other? Both, both are very important. And as we were preparing for the adoption of the Paris Agreement in the six-year lead-up of developing the concepts and developing the legal texts, et cetera, et cetera, we very, very intentionally reached beyond national governments because for two reasons. First, because it, while the national governments are, of course, the ones that within the United Nations, they are responsible for the text and they're the only ones that can legally adopt the text. The fact is that climate change cannot be the sole responsibility of national governments because national governments are not the highest emitters. And we tend to forget that. The highest emissions are actually coming from sub-national territories, from corporations, not from national governments. And so, even if we wanted to say you have full responsibility, it just do, it does not correspond to the facts. So yes, of course, they have the best possibility to enact policies, but those policies still need to be uh, taken to the ground and acted upon by other actors, private and public as well. Uh, so for that reason, we very, very quickly realized that we had to work with a much larger set of stakeholders than only national governments. But the second reason is that it is not only those who work in the national governments that are affected by climate change. Every single human being right now on Earth, whether we know it or not, we're all already affected by climate change. And it is in all of our interests to actually do something about that as quickly as possible. So if you will, we democratized the, the process of coming to a global framework and we took it way beyond national governments to private sector, to investors, to the spiritual and religious communities, to young people, to indigenous people, to women. We took it to all stakeholders that could actually be interested and take a stand to support governments, which is very different to what happened in Copenhagen, where all these stake or some of the stakeholders were at the table, but only criticizing and hitting national governments over the head. We said, no, 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 no. We're actually going to create an atmosphere of collaboration and mutual support and mutual interest. That is the environment that we created there with all of these other actors. Now, in fast forward, here we are in 2019, and frankly, the same thing is happening again. Thank heavens. It's actually fantastic that Greta has been able to mobilize young people to the extent, extent that she has, that the Extinction Rebellion is out on the streets. Um, and it's not any different from all of those women who have been out there bringing attention to the fact that the burning of fossil fuels is not only creating climate change, it's also creating local air pollution and that, that air pollution is actually killing seven million people around the world every year. And there are many women doctors, women comma doctors, not just women doctors, um, and mothers in fact, who have been on this case now for quite a while and who we to, hope to give more microphone to because we have to understand how absolutely toxic the burning of fossil fuels is. It is not only the pollution of the global atmosphere, it's also the pollution of our local air and the pollution of our lungs and, um, and bodies. So, um, so I'm actually quite grateful for everyone who is paddling. We're all in the same canoe or we're all in different canoes, but on the same boat in the same direction toward decarbonization. 
I know for sure the decarbonization of the global economy is now irreversible, completely irreversible. It doesn't matter what White House or Dark House, as I call it, I'm sorry, but I now call it the Dark House because there's no lights in there on any issue, climate or anything else. So it doesn't really, you know, the, the, even that, even the statements that we hear from, um, from that particular source cannot make the waters flow upriver. We are in an irreversible, unstoppable decarbonization of the world economy that is sort of like everybody on the, on the river with the, we're, uh, with the waters flowing. And every one of these, um, of these actions, the children on the street on Fridays, the investors who are saying this is too risky just yesterday, to, to give you another example, the largest um, pension fund of the world, which is the Norwegian government pension fund, um, just said we're pulling out of, uh, of oil and gas as investments because it's too risky. So, and, and you have, you know, a long list of investors who have pulled out of coal and now they're beginning to pull out also of oil and gas. So everyone from their different perspective, so that's why I say everybody's in a different canoe, so everybody from a different perspective, but everybody contributing uh, to the same direction of the river, like tributaries contribute more and more water to, um, to the river. So I am incredibly grateful to all of those tributaries that are contributing to accelerating decarbonization. Yeah, likewise. And I wonder if we could build a bit on your metaphor of the, the canoe and the river, because some people would say that this canoe is sinking. Some people would say, you know, there's a hole in the canoe and it's all too late and we're never going to make it. Some people would say we have two years to make it. Some people say we have 10 or 12 years to make it. Like, how, what is the science telling us from your perspective? And how do you work with this sense of urgency and at the same time, the need to be spacious and, and innovate and create the, the space to experiment with the new? Yeah, those, those two really have to be brought together, right? But I, I think the, the, the mark of uh, mature intelligence uh, that we now all have or can have if we so want it, is to deal with two realities at the same time, even though those two realities might, from some perspectives, seem to be mutually exclusive. Uh, and I think that given the complexity of global challenges, we have to develop that capacity to deal with at least two realities at the same time and hold them in equal standing. What do I mean by that? One reality is the one that I've just explained, um, that actually we have more and more understanding and more and more push toward decarbonization. That is fundamentally true. It's also fundamentally true that we are so running out of time. So, so running out of time. So, um, I don't know, Robin, I, I wanted to actually um, communicate the urgency that science has given us by using this little blue cloth that is very, very conveniently sitting here with my glasses. If I put it in front of my face, can you see it? Yes. Very okay, well. So, here's what I would like to do to communicate this to everyone. So science has told us that we actually have to start a very clear descent of emissions very quickly. So, uh, excuse me, I'm gonna you know, put this in front of my face, but it just um, helps to communicate the message. So if this little you know, blue piece of cloth represents more or less 40 gigatons, um, that is what we are emitting right now as a world every year. By 2020, which is only next year, we have to put ourselves in the position of beginning a very clear descent of emissions by 2020, such that by 2020, we then begin the descent of emissions 
And over the next decade, by 2030, we should be at one half of the original uh, emissions, which would be at 20 gigatons. Over the decade after that, from, 19, uh, from 2030 to 2040, we have to descend again by one half, so that now we are at 10 gigatons by 2040. And in the decade after that, from 2040 to 2050, we have to cut this down in half by again, so that by 2050, we actually only have five gigatons left. And those five gigatons are what we think the planet can absorb naturally. But this speed of descent, right, is the one that is dictated by science if we want to have any possibility of keeping the maximum temperature rise to 1.5. And after the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, put out its report of 1.5, we know that two things are true. Number one, the path toward 1.5 is the only path that we can take if we want to be true to our moral compass. Number two, the path to 1.5 is the only path that we can take if we want to increase economic stability and in fact, profitability and economic growth. So very fortunately, because the universe is wise, we have to pursue both our morality as well as economic stability through exactly the same path. We cannot choose between the two. We have to follow the same path for the, the two objectives. Again, two realities that sometimes people pit against each other. And they are not two realities that to be pitted, they're actually two realities to be brought into convergence with each other. Right, that's a great image that you've, you've given us, and it leads me to a question about where we need to focus our attention and our actions, because it often feels like we focus a lot on energy, for example, and we, did you fly to the conference, did you drive, did you take the train, did you do your offset? But of course, there's lots of other sectors that are also putting carbon into the atmosphere, and I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about which of these sectors need more focus than others, and kind of where are the highest impact actions that we could take to drive the decarbonization in the direction that you uh, indicated with the speed that we need to? So, it, obviously it depends on through which glasses you look at the global economy, but, um, but a, a couple of years ago we convened the climate analytical community, many, many different analytical um, organizations that look at this and we said, right, you know, can we actually pinpoint what are the sectors that are important and what speed they need to decarbonize? And what they came up with is there are basically six big sectors. Of course, each of those get divided into subsectors, but there's six basic sectors and we are doing better on some than on others. So the biggest sector obviously has everything to do with electricity generation. Um, and on that one, we're actually not doing so bad because we have already gone up to 23% of all electricity on all of the electric grids of the world is already coming from renewables. That's pretty impressive from two to 3% that we had just 10 or 15 years ago. So that has moved forward very, very quickly because of the very quick descent of, um, of renewable energy prices. Um, so we're pretty well on, on track with that. And we should be very soon at, uh, at 30% and then hopefully um, actually be begin to 
cut into uh, into 50% pretty quickly. So that is already on an exponential track of increase, um, which is the track that we are beginning to see on everything. We have to understand that decarbonizing the economy, because it's being done in the 21st century, is not going to be linear. It's going to be exponential because it's being helped by all the technology, by digitalization, by um, artificial intelligence, and that is going to help us to move out of the linear curve into the exponential. But renewable energy and the production of electricity is already on that exponential path. So that doesn't mean that we can relax. We certainly have to continue to invest and to, um, to propagate those, uh, those energies, but we're actually in pretty good shape on that one. We're beginning, we're beginning to get onto the exponential curve with um, electricity, electric um, mobility, um, because you have to understand that in this century, we're going to electrify many things that weren't electric before, just because it makes so much more sense. It's cheaper, it's more, it's more reliable. And so we're in a huge process of electrification, including mobility. And, uh, and we have already started to enter into that exponential curve with an increasing number of cities and uh, already banning the internal combustion engine. And most, if not all, of the car manufacturing companies already having come out to say that they are moving at least one, two, three models, if not all of their models, over to electrify um, electric models over the next uh, few years, so that you know by by twenty. In, in fact, we will be at cost parity between new vehicles produced with the internal combustion engine and new vehicles produced with uh, an electric motor. They will be at cost parity already by next year. That doesn't mean that we will renew the entire fleet of the world by next year. It just means cost parity, and that actually will be the tipping point then to begin to renew fleets. Um, India, again, my currently um, favorite example, 80% uh, of all the vehicles in India are two-wheel vehicles, not four-wheel, as we tend to think. And India has set out an amazing trajectory to electrify all of their two-wheel vehicles um, over the next three years. So you can, you can see how you know, that is already moving into an exponential curve and, uh, and will be uh, quite, uh, quite successful. And also think about what the electrification of, of mobility does for air pollution, huge benefits in air pollution um, decrease and in noise in cities. We can look forward to cities that are gonna be much, much less loud than they are, um, than they are now. So those two are actually on a pretty good path. Finance is beginning to get there as well because most of the large asset owners and asset managers have understood that uh, keeping their um, investment portfolios into high carbon investments is actually not good for them because those assets are what we call stranded assets. They're losing their value and will continue to lose value as the new economy takes over. So investments are moving over to the clean economy, clean energy, clean transport, um, actually quite quickly. So those three, it's sort of in that order, are um, moving faster. Other three that are not moving fast enough at all, one is everything to do with land use, everything to do with climate safe and sustainable agriculture, um, including, of course, deforestation or degradation of lands, all of that piece is still far behind. 
uh, as well as industry hard uh, or high emitting industries, cement, steel, or all of the, that industry um, is actually still uh, looking for the alternatives, although we have a fantastic report from the Commission for um, for decarbonization that looks at all of these hard to abate sectors and comes out and says, actually, we can move even those sectors over to, uh, to clean energy. It costs a little bit, but it doesn't break the bank. Um, so all of that is actually quite, uh, quite, um, quite good news, but we're not experiencing yet. And the third um, sector that is not moving uh, forward uh, quickly enough is everything to do with construction and infrastructure that has not yet gotten onto that exponential path of completely resilient and low carbon um, infrastructure. So of the six, three that we are, you know, at least a, a, a timid green, green check um, and three that are in, uh, in, in red. Right, that's really helpful and very clear and succinct way for us to also focus some of our energies in some of the areas that are not getting enough attention. And I want to I build a bit on what you said about India and also countries in what we might call the global south, which are the areas that are already facing and experiencing the impacts of climate change. They're going to be experiencing it more and more. There's this whole movement shifting the trillions, the kind of financial aid that needs to go, the technical support that needs to be passed from the global north to global south. Is it happening? How can it happen faster and deeper? What do we need to do to ramp up that transfer uh, of, of technology and finances? Well, it's happening, but way too slowly. Um, and the reason why it's too slow is because you, you have, um, again, to use my, uh, my river analogy for completely different purposes, you have two banks of the river that are looking at each other without building the bridge. Um, and so on one bank of the river, you have capital that is sitting there waiting to be deployed because we've had an incredible accumulation of capital since 2008. So it's sitting there waiting to figure out where is it going to be deployed. And then on the other bank of the river, you have most every country, most countries, I think, yeah, I can't think of one, that has actually put forward what we call a nationally determined contribution, which is basically their pre-investment plans, everything that they would like to do to decarbonize their economy that makes sense to them from their own national economy perspective. And that includes energy projects, includes infrastructure, it includes energy efficiency, very importantly. It includes resilience um, projects, it includes waste management, water management, all these projects that are good for their economy that they would like to really take forward. But none of them are actually, or very few of them, are in a, situa in a situation of what I would call bankable projects. So none of them are in documents that already have all of the information and all the analysis and all the intelligence gathering necessary to be projects that I could take and walk into a bank and say, will you finance this? In fact, not even into a bank, not even into a development bank. So, you, so we have, if you, if you will, you can think of those two banks of the river as supply and demand of capital. So you have on one side, you have supply that is there, you have demand that is there, but they're not building the bridge over to each other so that they could actually um, propitiate this um, decarbonization as quickly as we need. Right, there's also a great image that I think, again, very helpful for us if we're working in, in the Global South to, to support what's needed on that side of the bank. And maybe we could close with, with I'd like to ask you something about consciousness. We also 
this, one of the particular flavors of this conference, as you know, is climate change and consciousness. And you work a lot, I know, with your own development of consciousness and how you, how you take care of that. But also this balance of feeling the pain, the fear, sometimes the hopelessness, the despair, with this kind of relentless optimism that you also bring, global optimism, your, your kind of current organization. And, and how do we balance those things? And, and what, is, what practices might support us to develop the consciousness that we need to address the challenges of climate change? Well, a, co a couple of things comes, comes to mind, um, Robin. First, um, first, a very conscious development of sensitivity to these issues, because um, you know, the, the, the other option to that is to just wrap ourselves into our current cocoon of comfort, because you and I and everybody who's at this conference, by definition, we are in a cocoon of comfort, right? None of us are existentially threatened by climate change. And so we have to develop that sensitivity that we're actually incredibly privileged, that we are not currently or in the future existentially threatened by climate change. We have developed the sensitivity to understand that we are very privileged and that there are millions of people who are today already currently existentially threatened by climate change and that that number is only going to go up. So just to you know, get those numbers straight, if we go into a world that goes to two degrees, we're gonna have two to three times as many people existentially threatened or in fact dead because of climate change for many different reasons. Extreme heat, lack of water, lack of food, um, my forced migration, many different reasons, right? So, so we're here taking decisions, all of us adults, right now we're taking decisions that are going to affect the quality of life or in fact even the life of millions of people in generations to come so first to you know develop that sensitivity and understand what our huge responsibility we have right now on our shoulders that to me is the first step the second step is not to feel overwhelmed by that responsibility but actually to understand that this is a fantastic responsibility that we've been given and that we can actually meet and stand up and stand tall and be able to do the right thing by future generations. Fully understanding that it is incredibly complex, but that we have everything that it takes, not as individuals because none of us has everything that it takes, but as a collection, as humankind, we absolutely have everything that it takes. We have the technologies, we have the finance, it's on the wrong side of the river, but we have it. Uh, we, have the, we know what the policies are. We know, you know what we need to do. We have to actually be able to change our mindset. This is all about our mindset. And the mindset includes getting first getting out of the cocoon of comfort and, uh, and, and lack of sensitivity to a much more... Uh, mode of solidarity, both with those that are suffering now as well as in the future. But then secondly, to infuse ourselves with what I call, you know, stubborn optimism. Because, and, and when I call, speak about stubborn optimism, I mean two things there. First, I mean that optimism is not the result of success. That's celebration. That's a very different concept than optimism. Yes, celebrate your successes, whether it's private or family or corporate or whatever. Absolutely, we should all celebrate our successes. But that's not optimism. Optimism is a choice for me. 
It's a choice of attitude of how, how you bring yourself to the world. Do you bring yourself with pessimism? No, we can't do anything about it. Well, I mean, that's your right, but it sort of determines the result. If you come into any situation thinking we're not going to do anything about this, there's no way that we can do it, well, then probably you're not going to be able to change anything. Now, if you come to the world with a sense of optimism going, you know what, we have to. And from my point of view, we have to be able to address climate change, period, because it's our responsibility. It's not like we have another option of not doing it. It's not, because our moral responsibility is to address climate change. So being optimistic for me is actually a choice, and it's an input to a challenge. It's not the result of a success. It's the input with which we go into the world and face a challenge. But then we have to be stubborn. Um, and I just like the word stubborn just because it's funny. And I, um, I, 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 of course, my family also tells me that I'm incredibly stubborn, so that fits me. But when I call, when I speak about stubborn optimism, I mean optimism that is perseverant. Because absolutely, in, in this challenge of climate change, or in fact, it, when you face any challenges, um, you know that you're going to hit against a barrier. You know that you're going to be tripped over. You know that there are going to be closed doors and closed windows. That is not a reason to give up. That is only a reason to say, hmm, okay, there's a closed door. Where is there a window? Where is another door? Can I dig under the door? Can I jump over the door? What can I do? Um, can't just, you know, give up just because the circumstances are, are difficult and challenging. So that's what I call stubborn optimism. And that is, you know, a mindset that we have to get into our heads to understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're living in a really complex world and a world that has put many challenges in front of us, but what an opportunity. I actually think it is a sacred gift that we have given that all of us alive right now actually can contribute to producing a world, creating, co-creating, a world that is going to be more just, that is going to be safer, is going to be more inclusive, that is going to be more stable. How, how, how sacred and how fundamentally transformational is that opportunity that has been given to us in the Anthropocene? Because let's remember, we're now living in a new geological era. I was born in the previous geological area in the Holocene, and I'm now, together with you, living in the Anthropocene, where men and women have the responsibility, but also the opportunity to truly live up to our own highest self of consciousness um, and highest sense of agency and be the channels to solving these issues for the next generations. That is a unique in history opportunity that has been given to all of us as adults right now. Yeah, thank you. It's very touching also to have it framed as a sacred opportunity. And I think we need to bring our dialogue to a close now. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your thank passion you. and inspiration. I don't know if there's any final words, or final message you want to give to our conference. No, I think that's it. And thank you very much. And enjoy the conference. Enjoy each other. Learn from each other. Yeah, thank you so much, Christiana. We wish you every success in all the great work that you're engaged in. Thank you. God bless. Thank mm -hmm. you.